This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Dr. Clara Lee. Clara is a breast cancer reconstructive surgeon and a researcher here at the James. Clara is a microsurgeon, which is incredibly precise and complex surgery, and her research focuses on helping women with breast cancer get the information they need to make the best possible decisions when it comes to treating their cancer because, as we've learned on this podcast, there is no routine cancer. Hi, Clara. Hi, Steve. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And before we dive into your breast cancer research, let's talk a little bit about your career. It's, it's a fascinating mix of cutting-edge surgery, microsurgery, research that utilizes technology and apps, even a little psychology, and also the world of public policy. So fill us in on how you got to this point and how you got to the James. Sure. So when I was in medical school, I wanted to be a primary care doctor. I thought that was the best way I could help people and help the most people. And then I also had a real interest in health policy. From my prior experiences, I knew that some patients don't get the care that they should. Um, In other words, they have access problems and also that healthcare costs were too high. So I knew there were lots of issues and I wanted to somehow affect policy as well. Interesting how those problems have not changed and have well, <laughs> perhaps gotten worse. <laughs> yes, they are problems that that have always been around. Yeah. So the way that I thought I could best do that was by being a primary care doctor and by studying health policy. So I did study health policy and then when I got to med school, everything changed almost in a flash when I had my first exposure to surgery. So when I first did my uh, a rotation involving surgery during my third year of medical school, my whole life changed because I found out how cool it was. Now, when you, and this is something I don't, I don't know, when you're in your third year rotation mm-hmm. and you do surgery, do you actually get to perform surgery or do you, are you just sort of the assistant or like how much do you get to do? Uh, almost nothing. Um, you do get to be there. So So you see it. Yeah, you you scrub in on surgery, which mostly means that uh, you either are just watching or you may hold something. Uh, But for me, and I think for a lot of medical students, even just seeing that world was like, wow, Um, just amazing. And then uh, learning about the techniques and the approaches, and it it just uh, really excited me. And then you do microsurgery, mm-hmm. which, explain what that is. Obviously, yeah. micro means small, but right. how small? Yeah, so generally, microsurgery means operating on things that you can't see with the naked eye and that you can't see with special glasses and that involve, that require a microscope. So we use a, mic- a special microscope that's specifically for operating. It magnifies things about tenfold. And uh, so we mainly use that to reconnect blood vessels. Sometimes we use that to also reconnect nerves. Wow. So it just must take a lot of practice. And then how did you come to specialize in breast cancer reconstructive surgery? And I think you also do head and neck and some other kind of related areas? So I became interested in oncologic reconstruction or reconstruction in uh, people who have cancer when I was a plastic surgery resident. Uh, During my training, we did a lot of that type of reconstruction, and I found uh, a few things. One is it just fit my brain. 
In other words, um, reconstructing after something has been removed is sort like requires a type of geometric thinking and uh, cognition. You have that, to see things that aren't there. Yeah, and, and, and picture it. it yeah. yeah, and and then on top of that, picture it in a way that it's going to look normal and also function normally. In addition to filling the hole in a way that uh, you know geometrically makes sense. So that just kind of appeals to me. But more importantly, I saw how important the reconstruction is to the cancer treatment. In other words, there are many procedures that the oncologic surgeon or the cancer surgeon can only do because we can put it back together. And if if we couldn't, then they wouldn't be able to give as good cancer treatment as they could. Oh, so they're able to possibly remove more and make yes. get better margins and exactly. enhance that person's outcome because they know right. that you and, and others can reconstruct and help that person yeah. be cl- as close to it they were, as the way they were before. Yeah, which is really wow. cool. So it's just fascinating. And maybe one day you'll I can watch one of these. Absolutely. It just sounds fascinating. So that's what you do mm-hmm. as a surgeon. And then you, that's part of your job. The other part, as like so many people here at the James, you're you're a a physician, surgeon, and also a researcher. And I know you've told me a little bit in the past that um, one of your first big areas of research was how women decide whether or not to get reconstructive surgery. So fill us in on that research and where it's leading you to today. Yeah, so the decision about whether or not to have breast reconstruction if you have a mastectomy, which is removing the whole breast, is a very difficult decision to make. Not for everyone, but for a lot of women, for a few different reasons. One, it's a stressful time. Another, a lot of patients have not had surgery before. They really don't know what to expect. And then it involves a really personal aspect of a woman, you know, how she feels about how she looks and about how she feels, uh, sexual intimacy, all kinds of things. And and then there are also purely practical factors like how things are going to be when you get dressed. Uh, uh, And so it can be a really challenging decision. And there was some research before I got started showing that whether or not a woman gets reconstruction depends a lot on where she lives, her race, how much money she has, what kind of job she has, suggesting that the decisions are not necessarily being made in the optimal way. So when you said it, it that that decision is based on where someone lives, their economic standpoint, education, is it the, the higher the income, what does that lead to? And, uh, yeah. and, and the opposite, the lower the income, what does that lead to? Right. So that prior research didn't necessarily tell us anything about the decisions. It just told us that basically there was research showing that the rate of reconstruction, in other words, the percentage of women who, who have a mastectomy who get breast reconstruction, was higher uh, among women who had more money, okay. among, among women who were more insured, among women who were more educated. And all things that you know, are not terribly surprising, but probably shouldn't be the case. And perhaps it might be good to explain that getting re- reconstructive surgery after breast cancer, there are some uh, issues that could arise, which mm-hmm. makes which makes it that much more important for people to understand and make the right decision. Like what can happen yeah. in the surgery that 
would uh, impact someone's decision. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a number of aspects about being having reconstruction that are not straightforward. And that may still be right for a person, but they should know about going into it. One is that the recovery is longer than if you just have a mastectomy. The other is you're more likely to require more procedures later. Some of those are just touch-ups, but it does involve more surgery. Um, And then the other is that the risk of a major complication is higher than if you just have a mastectomy, which stands to reason because it's more surgery. And you literally take tissue? Is it tissue? Is it what, or what, or you, what you tell me, what, what is it you take from where yeah. that you implant? And then that is where the microsurgery comes in, where you yeah. reconnect the blood tissue or uh, blood vessels. Right. So there's a couple different, or there are several different ways we can do breast reconstruction. One is with a breast implant. So a lot of people have heard about that right. and that doesn't require the microsurgery. The other approach is where we transfer tissue. And the most common place is from a woman's belly, from her lower abdomen, where most of us have a little extra going. Um, And so we uh, remove that tissue from the abdomen along with its blood vessels, and we bring it up to the chest, and we connect the blood vessels of that tissue to the blood vessels of the chest using the microscope. How long would that type of surgery take? It depends on our number of things, but somewhere between six and 10 hours. So you have to have great endurance. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Okay. So those, so what you just explained is the procedures and some of the, the things people need to know, mm-hmm. women need to know. So now explain your research now that's going to help people at, make the decision that's best for them. Yeah. So there's been a whole bunch of research about other kinds of decisions that show that if you give a patient and sometimes if you give a provider something called a decision aid, they make higher quality decisions. Specifically, they're more informed about what could go wrong or what could go right, like what what are the pros and cons of the decision. And then they also are more likely to make a choice that fits with what's important to them. So I have been working with some of my colleagues to develop a decision aid. Uh, It's a web-based decision aid for patients and providers that's basically all about breast reconstruction, whether or not you should have it, when you should have it, and what type. So walk us through the website. Like when someone Mm -hmm. logs in, what does it ask them and how does that then help them lead them to, to their decision? Right. So a basic decision aid and ours does all of this. A basic decision aid, you'll log in or you start the video and it will go through some uh, facts about the treatment options. Like you could have reconstruction. This is what would happen if you do. You might not have reconstruction. This is what we, and it may show photographs, things like that. And then it will also do a second really important thing, which it will help you clarify what's important to you. So sometimes that's called values clarification. So it'll go through something like um, think about how concerned you are about your appearance in clothing and think about how concerned you are about your appearance without clothing. How concerned are you about the recovery time? Things like that. So that's what a basic decision aid does. What our decision aid does, which is goes beyond that, is it interacts with the person because it's web-based. So when she logs in, one of the first things it does is ask her information about herself. 
So instead of giving kind of generic information to her, it's t- it's tailored to her medical characteristics as well as her what's her personal preferences, what's important to her. Interesting. Now, what stage is is this web-based decision-making program at? So the tool is developed and we're doing a pilot study with my colleagues at other institutions where we're testing it. Uh, the next step we're hoping to do will be to uh, embed the decision aid into the electronic medical record, both for the patient. So in other words, they get a notification in my chart that they have access to the decision aid and then they can use it that way. And then the provider gets information based on what the patient said in the decision aid to them. And so they know what what the patient is thinking about. And all of this happens before the visit and then it helps make the visit more productive. Oh, so the, the the woman's um, oncologist will have the results and right. then they can talk about them. Exactly. And, and that will help lead them to the decision. Yeah. So you say it's in a, a pilot phase now. Right. Is, is, that the, is that sort of the equivalent of a clinical trial? I know that it's not where anyone's taking medicine or drugs, but is it, right. do you do a clinical trial, test it, and then it gets broader use or how does that work? Sort of. It, a pilot study is generally when you have a new intervention, like in this case, it's our decision aid. In the case of a clinical trial for cancer treatment, it would be a medication or it might right. be a new surgical procedure. But in this case, it's the decision aid. And the pilot, when we say pilot, that means you haven't tried it out yet. And in some t- sometimes that means you're just going to try it out in patients and see how they feel about it. Does it work? Does it interrupt their care in any way? Or are they okay with it? Are providers okay with it? And you might get some information also about how it affects their decisions. Uh, so that's what we're doing, basically, in a smaller group of patients, seeing if it's acceptable and if it affects decisions at all. That's a pilot in that we it's the first study. To okay. s- and then after that, you do the more definitive study to see if it's really effective and in whom is it effective. So if a woman listening to this is is it currently has begun her treatment, mm-hmm. it, is that something she could ask her doctor about or is it – or is it already that pilot group of people have already been selected? Right. So for our pilot study, it's a, it's a limited group. I think that a woman could certainly ask her doctor for some sort of decision aid. And there are some publicly available decision aids. She could also contact us and we could okay. you know, make it available to her. But soon, this will be perhaps after you get the results of your pilot study, you might make some little modifications. Then it will be hopefully – uh, utilized on a broader basis. So after the pilot study, then we will do a larger study in which we embed it into the medical record and also in which we test ways to implement it on a wider scale. So then it would be more available, but it would still be in the form of a study. All of these things which uh, affect patients and their care, we always test first, right. I- including in bigger studies. So and it's, yeah, it's important to take time and get it yeah, right and exactly. not rush anything. Right. As in not just – people think of that as chemotherapy or immunotherapy, but it's even these kind of yes. uh, educational decision-making right. things. Same thing. You don't want to have it so it's skewed the wrong way. Or, yeah, exactly. So. And you also want – so you don't want to harm the process, but also yeah. you want to make sure you're developing – the most effective and the most efficient tool. 
so that before you implement it and make it f- completely available, you know that it's the best tool available. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that this kind of research, which generally we call health services research, has the same kind of rigor of other kinds of research like medical clinical trials or device clinical trials. Which is a good thing. Yeah. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back with Claire to talk about some another interesting uh, area of research that she and her team here at The James are working on. Great. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at The James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Dr. Clara Lee, and we're talking about her research that helps women make the best possible decision when it comes to their treatment options for breast cancer. And Clara, tell us about sort of the next big area of research that you're working on. We're interested in studying how patients make decisions about whether to have mastectomy on the side that they have breast cancer or to have a mastectomy on both sides. In other words, one mastectomy or bilateral mastectomy. Okay. That's obviously a very important and difficult Mm -hmm. decision. And so how do you do that? Yeah. So we're specifically interested in studying their communication, so patients' communication with their physicians. We know that that's a really important conversation. And we've heard from patients that they feel they need to um, bring up the topic and uh, that it's an important topic to them. And we've heard from providers, and this is all sort of anecdotally and somewhat in the literature, that they feel uh, that patients are bringing it up and they have to respond. But we don't actually really know what gets said in these conversations. So in other words, there's some conjecture about it, but we don't really know. So we're focusing on what actually happens in those conversations. In order to make it a better communication? In order to understand a few things. One is there has definitely been a rapid rise in the percentage of women who are choosing to have bilateral mastectomy. And as a, and in some way, that's a sort of a preventive uh, right. a, a method. Okay. Yeah. So, so on the... I, I can never... So I'll never get this again. Right. So the... So a little bit of background is to know that some women are at higher risk of getting breast cancer in the other breast. So those are women who have a genetic mutation, like the BRCA mutation, or who have a strong family history. So for those patients, it's, it's in fact recommended by guidelines that they consider having a bilateral mastectomy. But it turns out that most of the increase in bilateral mastectomy has been among women who don't have either of those things. Oh, okay. And who are actually very unlikely to get breast cancer on the other side. And so we're trying to understand why that is. Okay. And it's important. But again, like you were saying before, it's important for Mm -hmm. these women 
to understand all their options, all the things that can right. happen, all the percentages to help them make the best possible decision yes. for them. Yeah. And okay. we want to understand how the conversations are happening now. And if there are areas for improvement, by by doing this, we can better know how to help patients make those decisions. So how are you going to do it in this in this new research? Yeah. So we were really fortunate to get a Pelotonia grant to do a pilot study um, for this for this research. Basically, one of my colleagues had the idea that we should enable patients to audio record, meaning record the sounds of their conversation with their providers. So there's definitely been research in which a researcher puts an audio recorder on the table where the patient or provider are going to be talking and records the conversation, and then you transcribe it, and there are various techniques for analyzing the conversations. But the limitation of that kind of research is you got to have a research assistant there to do that recording. And we know that patients get treated in places not just at academic medical centers, and understanding what goes on with them is just as important as understanding what happens in an academic medical center. And we also know that patients see the surgeon, they see a radiation oncologist, they see a plastic surgeon, they see a medical oncologist. And having a staff person at every one of those visits is not really feasible. A staff so, person who's recording and exactly, transcribing. Exactly, okay. yeah. So my colleagues and I had this idea that, well, patients can do the recording. They're all carrying around, basically, or most of them are carrying around a basically really um, a, a computer and a recorder in their pocket all the time yeah, or in their purse. Yeah, exactly. your smartphone has a yeah. – you can record on it. Yeah. yeah. So we had – we realized that, that they could do that. Um, and we thought, why don't we make our patients – like, why don't we become partners with our patients to do this research? The question, though, was how do you do it? How do you actually do it? How do you – can we actually enable patients to do this? And really importantly, can we get that information off their phones to our data servers in a way that's really secure? Because we don't want to take any chances on risking anyone's privacy or confidentiality. And so when we had this great idea and then we realized those questions, we realized, oh, we need to do a pilot study to figure this out. And that's when I applied for the Pelotonia funding. So again, kind of walk me through that. If a patient goes in to see one of her uh, physicians or Mm -hmm. doctors uh, to talk about her breast cancer, what does she do? Right. So when a patient, a new patient who has not been treated yet is seeing the surgical oncologist for the first time, uh, we approach her to see if she wants to enroll in the study. And if she does, then we help her download the app, which is available in app stores and in the Play Store. They download the app onto their phone, and then we show them how to use it, which is pretty straightforward. And then for every one of their visits, they just press play or record, and it records their visit, and they stop it, and then it automatically uploads. So the the whole team then has access to it. Their, their right. medical team has access to it. You know, uh, well, no, not necessarily their medical team. The study team does. The stu- oh, the study right. team. Yes. And you know what also strikes me is because I, whenever I interview someone to write a story about their work, their research, I record it and listen to it later. 
and it helps me understand it better. Yeah. And women, you're kind of in a daze when you're right. talking to your doctor. So having yeah. that recording that they can listen to, yep. perhaps with another family member or their mm-hmm. caregiver, they'll, they'll better understand what was said. And right off the bat, that may help them make yeah. better decisions. Yeah, exactly. So patients, definitely, they have the recordings. And it's all organized by the visit and who they saw and all of that. So it's easy for them to go back and listen to it. Yeah. They can bookmark important parts in the conversation. And they'll always have that. That's a great idea. And is this already, you said it's already available in the App Store? Uh, it is available. We're still testing it, so but it is actually available. So it's not something people should download yet unless they're part of the pilot study. Right. Okay. What, again, what? where are you? What stage are you in this pilot study? Yeah. So we're uh, in the stage of enrolling patients at Ohio State at the Spielman Center. When we have done that part, we will be rolling out to our community sites in Columbus. From listening to you, you said you, you at the very beginning of your career, you wanted to affect public policy. Mm-hmm. And then you discovered surgery. But now it sounds like all these things you're doing, helping women make decisions and creating research and software <clears throat> excuse me, that allow them to do it, is public policy. Well, yeah. So th- I think that this kind of research has really important implications for policy. So one way is we know that patients make better decisions when they have decision aids for certain decisions, not for all of them. And that has really important implications for policy, like uh, providing resources for institutions to provide uh, decision aids or enabling providers to use decision aids as part of the informed consent process and maybe even making that part of statutes for what constitutes informed, uh, informed consent. So all these pilot studies and research you're doing can be applied on a larger basis. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Clara, thank you for sharing all your research. It's really fascinating and a new way to look at um, helping women make better decisions. Thank you. It's been really fun. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Richard J. Soloff Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.